Renew International brings you small group resources to deepen your spiritual life. Renew's newest resource, Open Our Hearts, guides your Lenten journey to examine how you live out your faith at home, in your parish, and in the world. Learn more at www.renewintl.org Lent. Again, that's www.renewintl.org Lent. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I will bring you behind the headlines on the biggest stories out of the Vatican. Shortly before he died on Tuesday, Cardinal George Pell denounced the Vatican's plans for its forthcoming Synod of Synodality as a toxic nightmare. Cardinal George Pell's funeral was celebrated at the Vatican this past Saturday, January 14th. But two days before Pope Francis paid his final respects to the Australian Cardinal, it was revealed that the Cardinal had issued scathing remarks on at least two independent occasions, in which he denounced Pope Francis' papacy as a catastrophe. We look at the content and potential impact of his writings on a future conclave. Pamela Grollo says she no longer wants to be known only as F, as one of more than 100 complainants in a class-action lawsuit against the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Quebec alleging sexual misconduct by dozens of clergy. Grollo wants people to know she is behind allegations of unwanted sexual touching by a high-profile cardinal, Mark Ouellette. The alleged case of sexual assault against Cardinal Mark Ouellette, the former Archbishop of Quebec, and the present head of the Vatican office that vets bishops, returns to the spotlight this week. Miss F., a woman who alleges to have suffered four instances of sexual harassment and is facing a stunning defamation suit filed by the Cardinal, has chosen to reveal her identity and break her silence. We'll look at what has happened and what it means in light of Pope Francis' reforms to hold bishops accountable in sexual abuse cases. I'm Ricardo de Silva, and this is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New York, Jerry. Good afternoon from a wet and windy Rome, Ricardo. The water in the Tiber is reaching the top of the bridges. So wow. this is quite a winter-style Rome. And it's obviously cold in the studio because you're bundled up in a coat and a scarf. Yes, yes. I need to keep warm. So, Jerry, have things calmed down a bit since we last spoke? Well, I understand that Cardinal Pell's body may be going back to Australia, I think, today for a funeral that will take place on the 2nd of February at St. Mary's Cathedral in Sydney after one day lying in state. Okay. So that is one part of news. And the other part of news, of course, was last Friday, Cardinal Zen turned 91. Yes. So we, we addressed both Pell and Zen in last week's show. Cardinal Pell's funeral was celebrated at the Vatican this past Saturday, but not without a certain cloud over it, given some of the revelations we have seen since his death. This is the extraordinary thing that many people are commenting on in Rome, Ricardo, is the fact that Benedict died on the 31st of December. And immediately we had this media storm over the book by his secretary for many years and the press uh, interviews that he gave. So that became a, a cloud, as it were, over the 
the funeral, which was meant to be very peaceful, very calm, but th there was this media storm. And now we had the same thing with Cardinal Pell. He died, and immediately the day after, uh, it was revealed conclusively that uh, Pell was the author of the memorandum on the conclave, which he stated that Pope Francis's pontificate was a catastrophe, a disaster, and he was looking to the conclave that would soon follow, at least so he thought. And again, this created a media storm. Jerry, so let's just backtrack. The day after Cardinal Pell's death, Sandra Magister, a seasoned Vatican reporter who writes for L'Espresso, an Italian magazine, and runs Settimo Cielo, or Seventh Heaven, a blog under the magazine's banner, revealed that a two-part memo he had published anonymously on his blog that condemns the papacy of Pope Francis in strong terms was in fact authored by Cardinal Pell, one of Pope Francis's chosen and close advisors. A day later, The Spectator, a conservative British magazine, released a letter it said was written by Cardinal Pell just days before his death. The letter relays many of the same points of failure with the present papacy as the memo. It takes particular issue with the Synod on Synodality, currently underway in the Church. Mr. Magister has since confirmed the authorship of the memo with various journalists, including Jerry, who interviewed him last week to get the full story. I spoke to a number of Vatican cardinals, and they told me, we don't really believe that Cardinal Pell wrote this, using language calling the pontificate of Francis a disaster, a catastrophe. We don't believe this. And then I saw that in the United States, Father Joseph Fessio of Ignatius Press, the publisher of his of Pell's three volumes of Prison Diary, also contested it. So I decided the only way to clarify this was to go to Sandro Magister and talk directly to him. Other journalists had done it, but I went with two specific questions. Which questions were those? First of all, what can you tell me that shows, proves that Pell really is the author of this text? And he said, well, the Cardinal would come to my house with some frequency. I would meet him with some frequency. And this I, I, I was aware of. And he said, one day he arrived with printed document in his hand. And he said to me, I want you to publish this, but I want a guarantee from you that you do not reveal the name of the author. So Sandra Magister said, I didn't ask why he wanted the anonymity, but I gave him the guarantee that I would tell nobody who the author was. Which is curious because Cardinal Pell has been quite outspoken about his views of this papacy and on doctrinal issues as well within the church. Why would it be that this would be issued anonymously? Well, I, I mean, when you read the text, you understand it. That he, here is a close advisor of the Pope, one who is for, had been for three years on his inner circle of cardinal advisors, appointed almost immediately after his election to help him in the reform of the Roman Curia and in the governance of the Universal Church, saying this pontificate was a catastrophe, a disaster. Did he not say this directly to the Pope? Why did he not say it? He was sitting in, in the Council of Cardinals. I think they met for more than 30, 40 times. So I asked Sandra Magister, and he said, yes, he came with the document, already printed. And then he said, when Pell went back home, he sent an email with the document to facilitate his publication. And later he came back to him and complimented him for the way he had published it. So he was very happy with it. I then asked Sandra Magister a second question. Why did you reveal the name 
immediately after the cardinal had died. And he said, well, I had given him an absolute guarantee that I would respect his anonymity. And I had kept that and I had told no one who the author was, even though many people suspected it. But once he was dead, I felt I was no longer bound by the constraint of that commitment. As journalists, we might have a further question just around publishing such an anonymous and damning statement, right? I mean, this is a statement which takes issue and attacks the, the present papacy and doesn't allow it to defend itself, published anonymously. Well, we now know that Cardinal Pell, after the consistory in August, was telling people in Rome, I was told in October already, that Pope Francis had a serious illness and he obviously saw the end was, was coming. And it was not disclosed, this illness. Then he told John Allen, of the editor of Crux, who was a close friend of his from his days in Sydney, uh, he told him, uh, Francis has this serious illness not disclosed, linked to his colon operation on the 4th of July 2021, and prepare for a conclave before Christmas. John Allen wrote this in tribute to the Cardinal after his death. So what would be the motive for spreading such rumors about the Pope, which appear not to be true given you know, the Pope is still alive and despite his mobility issues, he seems to be in good health and the Cardinal has now died. I, I remember after the colon operation in 4th of July, 2021. This is the operation that Pope Francis had. Yes, the colon surgery that Pope Francis underwent. And many people didn't believe that he had got a clean bill of health after that. I, from the information I had, I, I saw no foundation for such suspicion. But there are those who, and many are in the camp of followers of Cardinal Pell, who would be happy to see the end of this pontificate. And I'm sorry to say that, but some people are saying it publicly, some people are saying it privately. They don't like the direction of the pontificate that Pope Francis has taken. And so uh, what Cardinal Pell was giving voice to things he was hearing as well. So we have a cardinal who's lost his right to vote in the conclave, who has no power to elect the new pope because he does not have a vote in the conclave, and yet he is still influencing or doing all he can, it appears, to influence the outcome of that conclave? Well, Cardinal Pell obviously envisaged himself as a kingmaker, an influential cardinal who in the pre-conclave meetings with other cardinals could uh, play quite a role and can be quite influential in convincing other people or really in getting candidates kind of pushed out. So why doesn't he want another Pope Francis-type pope? What is very clear is that Cardinal Pell saw two pontificates with which he identified completely. One was John Paul II, who made him a bishop, who made him a cardinal. The other was Benedict XVI, with whom he became close friends. So much so that at a certain point, Benedict was had intended, was on the point of appointing him as prefect of the Congregation of Bishops, which would have put him in a very powerful position in the Vatican. But he withdrew from that decision right at the last moment. So Cardinal Pell, he was a big hitter. He had a lot of followers, especially in the Anglophone world, because he 
presented himself as the standard bearer of orthodoxy in the Catholic orthodoxy. He saw Pope Francis, uh, what Pope Francis was doing was opening the church. He felt more happy and more the comfort zone where, where you feel safe. Francis is saying, we get out of the comfort zone. Cardinal Pell, in my view, seemed to more like the quite controlled synods. So that's an interesting point. He is particularly puzzled or disgruntled, I suppose, by Pope Francis' efforts with the present synod on synodality, right? This idea of synodality doesn't seem to chime with his theological vision of the role of the bishops. As one Vatican official said to me, maybe he saw quite clearly where Pope Francis was leading the church and didn't like what he saw especially in terms of the position on moral questions, but also in the position of moving away from a clericalism, giving more responsibility to the laity in the church. And he strongly emphasizes that in the article in The Spectator, he says the, the bishops have played the role in the synod. And he emphasized that the bishops really have the control. And Francis is opening the field more and obviously the cardinal does not like this. And uh, he hopes that the next pope will backtrack from that direction. The memorandum on the conclave is, first of all, a critique of Pope Francis's current pontificate. And the second is looking to the next conclave. And he says he criticizes in the first point the nominations that Francis has made for cardinals. And he hopes the next pope will return things to normality in terms of morality, in terms of doctrine. Probably in terms of geographic distribution as well, right? Well, you can put many things into it, but he's raising this question that he questions this move of Francis to go to the peripheries to appoint cardinals. Mm -hmm. Secondly, he made an astonishing statement in the critique of the papacy that Francis was going away from putting Christ at the center. Yeah, he says this is not a Christocentric papacy. Yes, but uh, I mean, I, I've <laughs> met several people here in, in Rome and the Vatican and also cardinals from outside who just shook their head in disbelief. And this is why many people didn't believe that the, uh, Cardinal Pell had written this document, because it, it goes against the facts. But he saw himself, obviously he was looking to another pontificate which would somehow follow in the style or... Uh, restore the situation that was under John Paul II and Benedict XVI. So, Jerry, in this memorandum, uh, this two-part memorandum issued by Cardinal Pell, who is an incredibly influential cardinal who seeks to influence other cardinals, we have a cardinal who was a close advisor of Pope Francis, suggesting that his actions are, in effect, heretical, that Pope Francis is deviating from what are the norms of the church. How do you read this attempt at influencing the next conclave, but especially the attempt at influencing other cardinals? Well, I think, Ricardo, you have to remember, this document on the conclave was written, published in March 2022. In August 2022, at the end of August, you had the Consistory of Cardinals. And what emerged there was that Francis had overwhelming support among the cardinals. Not more than 10% of the cardinals were against his position on the synod. 
And so th- this article Cardinal Pell wrote and was published posthumously on the 11th of January is surprising given that he sat in at that consistory and saw there was overwhelming support for the synod as Francis was leading it. I think this, in my estimation, really won't convince too many people, except those who do not want to listen to Francis. Mm-hmm. He also charged that uh, the one of the cardinals who's a key role in the in the synod is her- heretical in his stance on sexuality. So this is Cardinal Hollerick uh, of Luxembourg in Germany. He is also the cardinal relator of the Synod on Synodality, which means that he will be responsible for compiling all the responses and drafting the final report, bringing together the thoughts of everybody in the Synod Hall. What is extraordinary here is that if you look at what Cardinal Pell presents in the memorandum, there's a lot about his concern with morality and sexuality in it. And obviously, he is unhappy about the openness of Francis on moral questions. But Jerry, there's a clear difference here, right? And Pope Francis invites uh, criticism, conversation, dialogue, disagreement on theological and moral matters. Pope Francis is constantly doing that. Where this goes beyond, to my mind, is it is a direct criticism of the person of the Pope to whom he should be obedient and who has stood behind him throughout his many trials, right? Well, some people have raised the fact that when you become a cardinal, before you get the red hat, you take an oath. And part of that oath is to be obedient to the Pope, to be loyal to him. Uh, Some have pointed out that uh, uh, this doesn't seem coherent with the position that Cardinal Pell has been taking. We've got to understand that Cardinal Pell has, as I point out in my article, did not support the candidacy of Cardinal Bergoglio, neither in 2005 nor in 2013 conclave. You had two different visions of church. I know that you've dedicated much time, research, thought uh, to this matter uh, since the memorandum was issued. And you've written an in-depth article, which is now available at our website, americamagazine.org. I encourage everybody to read it because it really is deep analysis uh, into what is going on in this memorandum and in the letter issued to the spectator. And we'll link to it in the show notes. After the break, we'll look at the ongoing class action case in a Canadian court that implicates Cardinal Mark Ouellette and at least 87 other clergy members of the Archdiocese of Quebec in sexual offences. What questions are raised now that Miss F has chosen to publicly identify herself as a victim of sexual assault and has invited others to do the same? Welcome back. We turn now to the scandal unfolding in Canada where 134 alleged victims came together last summer to lodge a class action lawsuit. The case claims at least 88 members of the clergy and several other staff members of the Archdiocese of Quebec committed sexual abuses dating back to the 1940s, the great majority of them taking place in the 50s and 60s. This weekend, Pamela Grolot put a name and a face to her accusations of sexual assault 
against Cardinal Ouellette. The present head of the Dicastery for Bishops, the office responsible for vetting and overseeing the selection of most of the world's bishops, and against Leopold Manirabarusha, another priest of the Archdiocese of Quebec. Father Manirabarusha was suspended from ministry in May last year, but Cardinal Ouellette was never suspended and continues in his senior Vatican post. In a statement, Ms. Crollot said she had chosen to reveal her identity to restore her dignity, bring the church to reckon with its history of abuse, and encourage all who have suffered abuse to come forward. Let's look at a timeline of events in this matter involving Cardinal Ouellette, another of Pope Francis's close cardinal advisors. On August 16, 2022, a class action lawsuit for sexual offences was lodged in the Quebec Superior Court against some 88 members of the clergy and several other staff members, among them Cardinal Ouellette, the former Archbishop of the Diocese. On August 18th, Matteo Bruni, the director of the Vatican's press office, released a statement confirming that the Vatican had opened an investigation and had not found grounds for a trial against the Cardinal. Mr. Bruni added, quote, Pope Francis declares that there are insufficient elements to open a canonical investigation for sexual assault by Cardinal Ouellette against the person F. Around the same time, the Cardinal firmly denied the allegations against him. He claimed that they were defamatory and that he would participate in legal proceedings to ensure, he said, that the truth is established and that my innocence is recognized. Later, it was revealed that the Jesuit priest assigned to investigate the allegations against the cardinal was a personal friend, a move that brought into serious question his impartiality as a judge in the matter. On December 13th last year, almost four months later, Cardinal Ouellette announced he had filed a $100,000 countersuit against Person F in response to, quote, slanderous and defamatory accusations unfairly made against me he said in a statement. He added that he was pursuing such legal action to prove that he had been falsely accused and restore his reputation and honor. Finally, last Friday, January 13th, Miss F issued a statement publicly revealing her identity as Pamela Crollo. She chose to reveal her identity, she said, quote, to find the dignity that was taken from me, and she added, quote, I would like to see the church confront abuse rather than deny it, and I would like to hear the church welcome anyone who claims to be a victim with neutral, impartial, independent, rigorous, and professional processes. So, Jerry, how do we understand what is going on in this case? Well, this uh, is seen as a very embarrassing situation here in the Vatican. How so? Because here you have a cardinal who is the prefect of the Congregation of Bishops selects the candidates to be bishops in all parts of the world, taking a case against a young woman in Canada, a church worker. Who was in her early 20s at the time of the first accusations. She was 25 when the first accusations. Yeah, she accused him of four occasions on which this harassment took place. Now, she, first of all, approached the diocese in Quebec to address her complaint. Since he was a cardinal and a Vatican official, they referred her to Rome. She wrote to the Pope. The Pope appointed an investigator. 
But unfortunately, the investigator that was appointed was a Jesuit who was very close to Ouellette. But you were saying Pope Francis didn't, or at least you've told me on another occasion, that Pope Francis did not know the background. He asks for suggestions from his advisors, and they give him this one. Now, if they had followed the rules that Pope Francis had laid down in Vos Estis Lux Mundi, you are the light of the world, uh, that document states clearly, you can't be investigated if you have a conflict of interests. What is that document? Can you just summarize that for us? That is a document which seeks to establish rules and regulations for dealing with abuse cases. And especially to deal with bishops and cardinals. Also, yes. And so it, it lays down very clear rules. And one of them is that if you've got a conflict of, of interests, of course, this uh, Jesuit would have had it since he was closely linked to uh, Cardinal Willett, you, you should step aside and say, no, I'm not the appropriate. But he went ahead. And then the problem was this woman, as she said now, she said, I, I waited two years for an answer. And I didn't get an answer. And then she decided to join the class action. The cardinal responded by taking a case for defamation against her. Now, this is an extraordinary situation, and there are few precedents, I don't know if any in the church, of taking a case of defamation by a cardinal against a church worker. Obviously, he felt defamed. Well, let's, let's just talk about that defamation, because I think that defamation is somewhat specific and pointed, right? What Cardinal Ouellet seems to be taking offense against specifically is that he is being lumped with other sexual offenders who have committed, in his view, graver forms of sexual abuse, right? And that this is inappropriate touching and is not of the same class as sexual abuse. Yes, he makes two or three points. One, he says, this is not sexual assault, as it's understood. Secondly, as you have just said, you know, to put my case with those of abuse of minors is to confuse the whole question. Uh, thirdly, he makes an extraordinary statement. He says he doesn't know her. I can't remember meeting her. I, I don't know her. He says uh, in, the, in, the, in his deposition against her. Mm -hmm. So Jerry, did he know her? Well, she says he sat with her. He met her four times. So presumably there will also be photos of this. And, and so th th this is a, a quite an extraordinary situation. And he is then asking as compensation for the damage he has suffered and also psychological damage. $100,000 in compensation. He says he will use the money from the compensation. He will devote it to rehabilitation of indigenous victims of abuse in Canada. But what is this shaping up to be? That a cardinal will take a young woman, also a Catholic, to court for defamation. And what will she say in court? She says she stands by her claims. We don't know what evidence she will bring forward to prove her case. But it's not really a thing we, that is, brings any joy to the church. I think something else we can expect, which undoubtedly will happen, right? And which Ms. Krollo herself says in the statement that she made when she revealed her identity, is that this, she hopes, will inspire others to come forward and tell their stories. And so this will open the floodgates. Well, I understand, or I heard, read, that already three cases not linked to the Cardinal have been triggered by this, the denunciation for three other abuse cases. But here is a Cardinal in a high position in Rome, 
who meets the Pope every week. Because he is the prefect for the dicastery of bishops. Exactly. Which manages the selection process for candidates to the episcopacy, which the Pope then approves. It's a very important position that Cardinal Willett has had since 2010. So he's been in this going on 13 years. He, he will be 79 on June the 8th. So it's a, a problem for the Pope. And he has held this post unbroken, right? I mean, in the sense that even since these allegations, he was never suspended from ministry. He was never removed from his office at the Vatican. Uh, he has continued because he defended his innocence and that was being investigated. The Vatican found there was nothing to charge him for. And so they have continued with him in that role, which is very different to a priest who is accused, who is on any suspicion immediately suspended from ministry. So there still seems to be this double standard between priests and bishops and cardinals, which Pope Francis has repeatedly said that should not be the case. In fact, he told you that in the interview he had with America. Yes, this, this is the question that really, if you apply the legislation that Pope Francis has approved and is now in force. Both in Vosestis and then the changes to canon law. Yes. Then it seems anomalous what has happened because uh, he did not stand aside when there was an allegation. The allegation was not made public at that time. So there was no public demand for this. We knew that the investigation had happened after Pamela announced that she was taking part in a class action because she had given up on getting a response from Rome and was turning to the civil justice to have her dignity defended. And, and surely, as you've pointed out, Pope Francis meets with Cardinal Ouellette regularly, every week, as you were saying. So this inconsistency is not lost on Pope Francis, right? That Cardinal Ouellette is being treated differently to other priests, right? There's a serious problem here where there's a high-level cleric running the congregation for bishops at a time when the accountability of bishops is so central to the church, such an important question that we're asking over and over. And yet, the one who is supposed to manage accountability across his diocese, his own accountability is being called into question. Well, it's it's a curious situation because you had something similar with Cardinal Pell. Because when he was charged with the abuse of two minors, choir boys in Melbourne Cathedral, and returned to Australia in 2017 to face trial, he still remained prefect of the Secretariat for the Economy, as it was called then. And he remained prefect until his five-year term of office ended in 2019. So Francis stood by him because Francis believed in his innocence. But this seems like a parallel to that. Mm -hmm. I think questions are obviously being raised, and I think Francis is in a very difficult position. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's perplexing. It's inconsistent with Pope Francis and the Vatican's own norms on procedures that we now have, on top of all of this, a high-ranking cardinal pursuing legal action against an alleged victim of sexual harassment. And there really are more questions than answers right now. Well, like Cardinal Pell, Cardinal Willett 
insists on his innocence, denies that anything like this happened. But in terms of the legal process, whether this has been followed, that's another question. Well, Jerry, we will certainly keep watching this. As you've said, it appears that this case is it's only just beginning, right? Especially now that Pamela Kolo and at least three others have come forward. Uh, we are surely going to hear more from Canada and from the Vatican as this case develops. We've spoken at length about Vosestis and we've tried to give some context where it pertains to this conversation. When Vosestis was first issued by the Pope, you had an in-depth conversation with Colleen going into the issues, what Vosestis is trying to achieve. And so we will link to that in the show notes so that our listeners can hopefully connect some of the dots between this case and the inconsistencies you point out with Vosestis. I have also written a piece that explains in greater detail uh, the timeline with Ms. F and Cardinal Ouellette, uh, and so we'll link to that in the show notes as well. So thank you, Jerry, for letting me in on what's going on in the Vatican at this time. It's always fascinating to talk with you. Uh, we'll see you again next time. Thank you, Ricardo. I hope our listeners are finding some enlightenment in our program, and uh, there's certainly no lack of news from this side of the Atlantic. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our audio engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Production assistance from Kevin Jackson, Christabel Spielman, and Vivian Richard. The show is recorded in the William J. Loschett Studio at America Media in New York and at the Jesuits' international headquarters in Rome. Follow us on Twitter at INSDE Vatican Pod. That's inside, without the second I, Vatican Pod. And you can follow me, Ricardo De Silva, at RickDSSJ on social media, that's R-I-C-D-S-S-J, and Jerry on Twitter, at Jerry O'Rome. To keep up with the latest Vatican coverage from America Magazine, visit americamagazine.org. And while you're there, please consider becoming a digital subscriber to America. It's easy to do, and it's the best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Ricardo De Silva. We'll see you next time.